0: Legends of Media Research is a podcast series featuring interviews with the media industry's leading researchers. Where we go, behind the scenes, sharing stories from their greatest achievements and challenges. Brought to you by Media Science, the leader in media and advertising innovation research. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for more information about Media Science. But for now, I'm your host, Media Science CEO, Dr. Dwayne Veron. Welcome to another exciting episode of legends of media research. Today's episode is a little bit different. We've been looking at the legends from a researcher perspective. Today, we're going to twist the game a little bit. And we're going to look at it from the executive side. What's it like for executives who work with researchers? And one of my absolute favorites here is Rick Mandler, who's currently head of marketing insights and client experience at Comcast advertising. Now, Rick used to work at ABC. I worked very closely with him across, actually, even before my Disney Lab days. We go back all the way back to maybe 2001, is it, Rick? We go back a long way. 2001.
1: Yes, I think 2001, yeah, at NAB.
0: That's right. So just to get everybody in on the story, by the way, welcome, welcome to Legends of Media Research.
1: <laughs> Thank you, Dwayne. No place I'd rather be.
0: So let me give the audience the background on how we met, because it's a little bit of a funny story. So once upon a time, way back in 2001, I was an academic and I had built a very small research center looking at new ad models for television. This was from Australia. So it was off your beaten path, so to speak. And I had gone to the National Association of Broadcasters Convention in, in April of 2001 in Las Vegas. And I was very naughty, Rick. I don't know if I've told you this story, but I was actually very naughty. I snuck into a session. It was a closed session (laughs) from Ernst & Young. You snuck into
1: my session. I snuck into 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 the
0: session, session. yes. I snuck into the session.
1: I thought you were a paying customer.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What I did is I walked into the one that was just before yours and I stayed. And nobody noticed that I was sitting there. And so I managed to sneak in and there was a presentation that I I think it was Ernst & Young gave about new ad models and they had done some research and they had worked out that the ad model of the future would be this thing that they were, I think, calling telescopic ads or something like that, which was basically you would see a short form ad and then you would click to go to the long version. And they said, you know, this is really a hot model. And we think that you should do some research. So they were pitching this idea to you network executives saying, we think you should do some research to test this. And I'm sitting there in the audience. I had already done that research. And I sat down and I thought, should I say anything? If I say anything, people might kick me out. (laughs) I'll be like, what's this guy doing here? What's this academic doing here? But I raised my hand very boldly And I said, I've already done that research and you're absolutely right. It's one of the best new ad models. And I went ahead and shared some data. And then you walked up out of the blue and you invited me to lunch. (laughs) And that's, that was the start of our relationship.
1: So so it's interesting. I, I don't remember Ernst Young. I do remember you raising your hand and talking about the research and I came off the stage and said, Hey, let's go have lunch because uh, I was so interested in what you were talking about. I remember the lunch being, eh, it was, it was before food in Las Vegas was was any good. We went to some like re- mediocre place, but it was just a fun lunch because we both had a passion for getting it right about the business and saw the changes that were looming as opportunities to re-examine things that were conventional wisdom and think about the business differently and use had a vision for a lab that could be used to efficiently and quickly test a lot of different ad models and consumer reactions to things. And I thought that was just so interesting and compelling. And I went running back to Disney to say, Hey, I met this guy and there's this really interesting stuff that he's doing in Australia. And maybe we could do something with him in the United States and that was and the, you became my first or...
0: us yeah you became my first us client it was a student project there were student projects back in those early days but it was the start of us working together
1: and i consider it one of the great moments of serendipity of my life i really do <laughs> me too uh, me
0: too rick it changed only, my path
1: yeah it, mine too it changed my path too and also we've been connected to each other ever since
0: that's right that's right and when i look back rick at the research that my students were doing in that era, this is 2000, 2001, 2002, even today, so much of that research is way ahead of its time. These students were doing studies on addressable TV advertising. It wasn't even a thing then, (laughs) all kinds of great studies that these student projects were doing. And again, you were our first American industry sponsor and that started this process, which saw us interacting more and collaborating more. And eventually, of course, that led to what became the Disney Media and Advertising Lab some years later, but still that was the, the beginning of that path. We go back a long way, you and I, you're my first U.S. client actually.
1: We do. I'm very proud of that association.
0: Really, (laughs) me too, me too, Rick. The twist today is that, as I was saying earlier in the intro, we usually interview researchers, but really to get research right, you need both sides of that equation to come together. You need executives who have the vision, who have the hunger, who have the desire for research, who are also open to honest research, not just research that tells them what they want to hear, but research that really answers their questions, that really provides them with ground truths. And uh, that's why I thought it'd be so good to bring you on the show, Rick, because you really are a model executive, you really have done a great job across your career in terms of being a champion for the research and really helping Allow the research to guide the product, and not the other way around. So that's what we're going to talk a lot about over the course of over today's uh, episode. Okay.
1: okay. First of all, Dwayne, you may be the only person to think I'm a model. So <laughs> Secondly, I've always been deeply involved in research and work closely with the research department. And for me, it's like Moneyball. There's a lot of things that happen in media. That just happened because that's the way they've always happened or because some senior executive has an instinct about what the right thing to do is. And I just felt like early on in my career, I felt like there's all this data and research available to us. Why aren't we making use of it? Why aren't we applying science to to what we're doing? And so for me, being a good media executive meant making good evidence-based decisions. And that meant I needed to stay close to and be supportive of the research department. And I feel like I'm a challenging client, maybe three reasons. One, because I was a psych major in college, so I know just enough about social science research to be dangerous. (laughs) Two, I'm, I'm a lawyer and I'm not shy about asking hard questions and trying to understand the logic behind study design or why results are the way they are. And then I think the third reason I'm, I'm a little bit of a hard client is because I want to tell the story and and that's good, right? Ultimately what we want to do is use the data to tell the story, but, but I want to tell the story. There's a way in my head that I want to tell the story. And so I always have a conversation with the people I'm working with on the research side, because they get the data and they would tell the story a certain way. And I'm like, no that's not how to tell the story. This is how to tell the story. And so there's a little back and forth that goes on there. And I think that I always feel like there's a quiet voice inside some of the folks I've worked with heads going, but this guy just shut up so I can do my job.
0: (laughs) But you raise a really good point. I want to focus on that third point in particular, because researchers often get lost in the findings there's a lot of effort that's made to make sure that the findings are as pure as the snow, that the, that the data really tells its story, and there's a place for that. But it doesn't mean that researchers are best at understanding the application of that research, how it is that research will ultimately be used. And that's where that exchange with the client is really critical because the client is actually closest to understanding that side of the, of the equation. And so there is a real value in this exchange that you're talking about here. You don't want the findings to be dry. You don't want people to have to make a lot of effort and work to try to understand what the potential application might be. You really want it to be understood in the context of its ultimate application.
1: I think that's exactly right. And let me give you an example that you and I were involved with that played itself out in, uh, in ABC's offering to the marketplace. ABC was early to the game with a full episode player and ultimately was offering full episodes in desktop, on TV, and on mobile devices in the early days. This is before CTV. And the TV and digital communities were not, the buying arms were not unified at that point. So there were different buyers and different prices being paid for inventory in the same shows, based on whether it was on a, a phone or desktop or a regular TV. And we worked with you on ad impact based on screen size, essentially. And the results then, and it's interesting because I think there's a little nuance that's come out since then, but the results then were that basically the ad impact was about the same, regardless of the device. People accommodated so that they moved closer or farther to the screen based on the size of the screen so that the total amount of the field of view was about the same. Their engagement was driven by the show more than the device they were watching on. And so that, you you, you said, hey, this is a non-result. And I was like, this is great. (laughs) And and like, why is it great? Because we can go back to the advertisers, the agencies and the advertisers and say, hey, the price should be the same because the impact is going to be the same. And we could simplify our offering. And that's how ABC Unified was born. One price across every screen or on a single demo. And, and it way, was, ahead way ahead of the market, way ahead of the market. It was ahead of the market, but it was driven by that research result. But the key thing was being able to see the business impact that Absolutely. research result going to have.
0: Absolutely. And you know, you raise another good point. I I know it wasn't the focus. When I look back at those years and all the research that we did, it was usually the case that as a result of the research, ABC made a ton more money. (laughs) I'm thinking of another great example was Good Morning America, which was first, by the way, in introducing the picture in picture ads way right. before anybody else did it. And it was in Good Morning America. It was the, during the weather crawl. Instead of just having the weather crawl, there was this idea about having this picture-in-picture ad. And of course, the assumption was, oh, this is going to be a second-class, vastly inferior yeah. ad product. Is there any value that we can, is it really worth even doing? Is there any value associated with this? And you know, maybe the news people will be really worked up about it. Maybe it'll damage the news and maybe it's not worth doing at all. And the results of the study showed no adverse impact on news or program. And actually that it was a superior ad product. And so when this product then rolled out to market, instead of being a second rate product that was offered at massive discount, it actually became a premium product. (laughs) Uh, So a great example, again, of how much money ABC could make off of that insight
1: yes and there's another layer to that which is the conventional wisdom was it's going to be an inferior product but because we had under you know jerry wong's leadership we had a let's see what the data says approach we tested it and sure enough it came out favorable and i think that's another example of how the intersection of research and business is so important, right? Because by being open to the possibility that the conventional wisdom is wrong, we ended up gaining an insight through the research that led to stronger business.
0: And also, I think it's important to remember that in that particular case, it also meant that the programmers could be enthusiastic about the proposition because the data was there to prove to them that this did not have an adverse impact on, on their business right. and on, on, on their passion.
1: Let me modify what you said. It's not really the programmers so much as the producers. who right. are like, what are you doing to my show? <laughs> no, but you're absolutely right. When you come to them with data to support it, you're in a much stronger position.
0: Yeah. And I think the other thing was because the data involved the neurometrics, the eye tracking, because it was just such deep data, it was credible and it was believable. So everybody across the equation could look at that and really trust the results and not feel like the results were just being gamed to an agenda.
1: And we would bring people who we needed to get on board to the lab and they would come away blown away by the, the level of scientific rigor and the sort of starship energy enterprise feel of the whole thing. (laughs) Good
0: description.
1: (laughs) Uh, That it, that it was easier to get them on board.
0: Absolutely. And you worked with a lot of great researchers. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about all the great researchers that you worked with across your career.
1: I'm going to name names and then everybody who I didn't name is going to hate me. This is going to be terrible.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Name some of the names, Rick. You you can't cover all of them because there were so many.
1: I worked with a lot of great researchers, you and your team, of course. Mark Lowney, Lisa Hyman, Brian West, Rachel Mueller Lust. I had the privilege yeah, of working I remember with Alan, Rachel. Rachel. Rachel, was, Rachel was there at the beginning when we started AdLab. That's right. Marty Bolgren at ESPN. I had the privilege of working with Alan Wurzel when he was at ABC before he went to NBC. And he gave me the best advice I ever got in my career very early on. Uh, and what was that? The advice was keep your expenses clean because it's television. And sooner or later, some idiot who doesn't know what you do is going to fire you for no damn good reason. Don't make it easy. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was excellent advice. <laughs>
0: Let's get everybody caught up. We've jumped into the whole discussion of strategy, but let's give everybody a little bit of a profile of your career. One of the things that's been really surprising across these legends interviews is that the vast majority of legends actually came into the media industry, not planning that as their career path. And that is certainly the case with you, Rick. (laughs) Why don't we start with what you did before you came into the media sector, because I think it'll surprise people.
1: So I was a lawyer. I was at a law firm called Patterson, Belknap, Webb, and Tyler. And ABC and ABC News was a client of the firm. And I ended up working on a small libel case for ABC News. And through no act of genius whatsoever, I made the case go away. And the people at ABC News were suitably impressed. They should not have been. (laughs) (laughs) and they said hey we like you you made a libel case go away would you like to come work for us and I said let me think about it yes Um, (laughs) and so I I, I started out as a lawyer at ABC News I did pre-broadcast review and hidden camera analysis whether we could or could not use them in a particular jurisdiction and it was a lot of fun and It was pretty much the only legal job I could imagine doing at the company. And so I started to think about what non-legal jobs were out there if I wanted to grow. And so I transitioned from news legal to business affairs, which is legally. It's a lot of contract and talent and production agreements negotiated. But at the end of the day, I would write up a memo and send it to legal and say, here, take care of this. So that was fun. And then as a side hustle, I put together a business plan for streaming radio and pitched it to the guys at ABC radio and they hired me and they said, great, you're hired. And I'm like, what do you mean I'm hired? Said, We're not going to green light the business plan without the guy who wrote it. I said, but I'm a lawyer. And they said, not anymore. <laughs> 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 and, and, and that's that was really the beginning of the end. I, I have not practiced law since then. And my bar membership has been retired and I've worked in advanced media, digital media, ever since.
0: And one of the things that I think would be really interesting for you to describe for the audience, this goes back again to prehistoric times, is is you were there at ABC when ABC put its first toe, so to speak, into the digital universe. And that, of course, was just with websites. Remember, this was an era where there was no broadband. It was still the era of dial-up internet where internet was super, super thin. And you had this responsibility, this portfolio where you began working with the stations in particular and getting their kind of, or trying to get their web presence up and eventually, of course, with ABC as well. Maybe you could tell us about that era and what that was like.
1: Sure, I think, you think about it, People who have grown up with broadband as just part of the air that they breathe have no idea what a different experience a 56K modem was, right? So if you think of broadband as a thousand megs a second of bits, and you think of 56K as 56K versus a thousand K is a meg, right? The speed differential is just astonishing. And your web experience had to be created with that sort of bottleneck in mind. But I think for a lot of media executives, it was really hard to reconcile the notion of what their brand should look like and how it should be presented with the limitations of the early days of the web. And so when I for left streaming radio and took over starting up the internet businesses or professionalizing the internet businesses for the abc owned television stations group a lot of them had their own websites that took 10 minutes to download because they had these gigantic graphics with pictures of the talent because that was the the way they presented their brand and i totally get how you want your brand to be presented properly and consistently across all of your channels what, over a 56K modem? made it just wasn't going to work. And so that was, those are fun days where I'd come to them and say, hey, I have a new design. And they would say, but that's not within the style guide of my station. And I said, yeah, but the page will actually load.
0: And these GMs in that era were very powerful.
1: Tremendous autonomy because the stations were a great business. And in those days, I, I can't speak to them now. I, I really don't know. But in those days... They had 50% plus profit margins, and they really were very powerful in their communities and were the strongest player for local advertising. And now they face competition from local cable and then, and of course, Google and Facebook and everything on the web. It's a
0: different era now, yeah. Era.
1: But they were just like almost dictators of their business. And you really had to take your hat in hand to convince them to do something differently from what they wanted.
0: So in my mind, the thing that makes you most a legend, Rick, is the work that you did really in pioneering two screen TV. And and I want to give again the audience a little bit of background. So, again, visualize this era where you have low bandwidth Internet and you don't have the luxury of having video (laughs) because it takes forever to download. And so what Rick did for ABC was created what was called a two-screen experience, where you would watch TV on your TV screen, and you had this interactive content that complemented what was on your TV, on your uh, mobile or your desktop. And so it was this two-screen experience where you were simultaneously interacting with the show through your Internet connection. So Rick, tell us a little bit about that. Again, you pioneered an entirely new genre, but what's amazing is there's so many things that you discovered in that era that are just as relevant today as they were way back in that era.
1: Well, thank. I appreciate it. I, one of the things I've learned over my career is never credit monger. So I, I will say that I was not there at the birth of what we called ABC Enhanced TV, but I was certainly there for a large part of its, its its life cycle and it was really interesting work and your point is very very well taken it was a product that was a function of what was possible given the state of connectivity at that time and there was a feeling that we could create additional information for people that they could interact with while they watch tv and the reason we were doing that on their pcs their laptops basically was because it was the only way. There was an expectation that there would be interactive elements on the TV screen itself driven by the set-top box. But for various reasons, the set-top boxes that got first deployed were relatively low power and had very limited resources for interactive elements. And, ev- and, and it was even harder to provide synchronized interactive elements on those boxes. What, what we would call one screen interactive television. Necessity is the mother of invention. We did two screen interactive television, but still we were working with a 56K pipe. And we were working with the latency of the early internet. The execution that m- most people remember is what we did for Who Wants to be a Millionaire? And most people are familiar with, it's a game show. The host asked a trivia question, The participant chooses from one of four possible responses. There's a lot of tension as the guest and the host interact. And then finally the correct answer is revealed. If they got it right, they get more money. If they got it wrong, sorry, you're out. So we created a play along game. So the host would ask the question. We would pop the question on your screen. You could pick A, B, C, D, decide which of the right answers. And then you would gain points towards uh, an overall goal if you got it right or you wouldn't gain points if you got it wrong so there's a lot of challenges there right you have to somehow synchronize the experience so that people can interact before the answer is revealed on tv because <laughs> otherwise you got a problem you had to synchronize the experience by time zones because people are watching in time zones and so it has to be live to them you had to make this experience compelling and yet not distracting. So you had to give them enough to do that they wanted to do it, but not too much to do that they felt overwhelmed and just gave up. And it was really interesting and hard to to work through all those problems. And for me also, it was a privilege because a big part of our tech team came from Walt Disney Imagineering R&D the same people who were building the next generation of park experiences. And so it was so fun working with them and learning how they approach problems and how they design things. Really, that was a, a total privilege.
0: And of course, you also had interactive ads as part of that experience.
1: We learned a bunch of things. One of the things we learned was that not everybody wants to have the same level of engagement with an interactive application. So we tried to create experiences that worked against three different segments of users floaters swimmers and divers the floaters they're bobbing in the water they're not going to do that much they're mostly passive an interactive element for them might just be for a sporting event let's say some additional stats the swimmers okay they're going to engage they might play a trivia game of some kind the divers are looking to make decisions on every play of a football game, right? They're gonna dive in. And we needed to develop compelling experiences within the same product for all three cohorts. We learned to create experiences that made for gamification, made for in-game competition as a way to drive attention. We learned about leaderboards and groups. I wanna see how I'm doing versus the national leaderboard. I want to see how I'm doing through my six friends who I'm playing against together in a group. And most importantly, we learned about how to monetize. So we would do things like make the commercials interactive and consistent with the experience of the play along game while you're watching TV. We would give people points for interacting with the commercials and we would get a lot of comments you make it so I can't uh, change the channel because I'm not going to be able to keep my place on the leaderboard by making the commercials interactive, I'd be like, yeah, that's a good thing. (laughs) That's why we do it. I was sympathetic to the people who wanted to make a quick run to the bathroom during the commercial break and lost points for that, but sorry. So there was a lot of learnings that came out of that. And it's funny because I feel like in many ways, those lessons keep getting relearned again and again today.
0: That is so true. Just for people to get the context of what we're talking about here. We're talking about 20 years ago. (laughs) This is a long time ago.
1: Yeah, no, we're talking 1999 to 2003, roughly.
0: Yeah, that's a long time ago. And you were also part of the team that introduced the online media player at ABC. ABC, I think was the first. To really bring that kind of product to market what what was Uh, that experience like that must have been that must have been filled with a lot of challenges a lot of strategic questions internally about whether this new beast would cannibalize the business like what this was all really about
1: it was really exciting time Scarby henderson was the the leader of the technology effort and and he and the head of abc.com at that time a guy named harry lynn spearheaded the product design and development. And then I played a part in, in the ad product and thinking about how we were going to monetize that viewership. And we did a couple of interesting things. Like almost all ad products, first, first generations of media products. We rolled out a sponsorship model. We had limited sponsors to start with, but ultimately what we rolled out was an interactive advertising canvas very similar to what we had pioneered at Enhanced TV. So that advertisers could take advantage of the fact that users were watching the shows on a PC and give them an interactive experience because we had proven through the research that the interactive experience drove higher ad recall, higher purchase intent, and all the other nice things that you want your ads to do. There is an irony, which is in the early days, we got a lot of interactive ads, And as time went on, we got fewer and more just traditional thirties and fifteens repurposed for the internet.
0: I think one of the problems that we've had as an industry is that the skill set that was required to really do this right, just doesn't exist in the market. If Mm -hmm. you're good at video and storytelling, then that this isn't the medium for you in a way, if you're good at very functional search utility like applications on the other end then you didn't really understand the emotional dimensions of video this whole task of bringing video and interactivity together i think still today is one of the greatest challenges because it's a skill set that requires something different from the skill set of either purely interactive or purely video
1: i do think that's right and i think it's one of the challenges that we grappled with in enhanced tv which was how do you create a sidecar experience that complements rather than interferes with the emotional narrative of the TV show. And it, and the answer was, it's really hard, and some shows lend themselves to it more than others. So game shows were great, sports were, were great, dramas and comedies.
0: I remember this award-winning interactive documentary, which... By the way, I won't say who it was for, but it was for uh, another network. It wasn't ABC and it had this documentary on the crossing of the Contiki. So they made a raft, like what the Contiki must have been like to sail from South America to Easter Island. I think it was, and there's this one scene where you have sharks circling around the raft and somebody falls into the water and there's this fear that there's going to be a shark frenzy. And right at that moment a window pops up that says, would you like to know about sharks? <laughs> and it's a great example of how the people who do that don't understand the emotional dimensions of television. And that it's very common, these kinds of things. The, the gaming community probably gets a lot closer to the skill sets that are like required to uh, to produce in that space.
1: I think that's right. And it really raises an interesting question, which is, I do think that people become invested in characters in games and that games have emotional content. But it's much more complicated and, I think, harder for a person to become invested in a gaming character in the same way that they've invested in a character in a scripted drama.
0: And then, of course, post-enhanced TV, you really went more into the ad sales role and doing, again, spearheading a lot of research on that side of the business at at ABC?
1: So a big part of what we were pioneering at Enhanced TV were new ad models. And it was a natural transition to go from there to the advertising group. I will say it it was not an easy transition though, because I did not grow up in ad sales. And so there was a whole language I needed to learn. And it was hard. And also, frankly, there was a little bit of hazing Like I I told my wife, it's like high school and I come into the cafeteria and there's the cheerleaders and the football players and they say, hey, Poindexter, come over here, (laughs) sit with me, help me out with my homework. And as long as I'm helping with their homework, I probably won't get invited to to the kegger. (laughs) But I'm not really one of the gang yet. And it took me a long time to, to become one of the gang. But I'm really glad I did because it's so great to work in the part of the business where you get tangible results really quickly. If, if you make something work in sales, you increase the budget, you get a higher pricing, you get real immediate feedback. And, and that's just so special. Sometimes you have to wait for a season to know <laughs> whether something's working or not, but not in ad sales. In ad sales, you pretty much know right away.
0: And, and during that era, you also became an adjunct professor at NYU teaching a TV management class.
1: Yeah, what was that like? That was fun. It was fun. Dwayne. Uh, I guess I'm a professor. I like to teach. I like finding ways to explain complex things in simple ways that everybody can understand it. I will say I have newfound respect for how much work teaching is. Building lessons, grading projects and papers. It was a lot of work, but it was a lot of fun. And, and NYU Stern is a great place.
0: Then you followed Pooja across to Truex and you left uh, ABC Uh, when Pooja went to head up uh, Truex, you followed uh, along. Uh, What was that transition like?
1: It was interesting because first of all, Pooja and I had been working together for a long time and we were a really close partnership. So following her to Truex felt very natural. And Truex felt very natural because Truex's core product was an interactive ad model that exchanged something of value for a viewer's attention. The classic one was, if you engage with this ad, you can skip the rest in the pod. So that was very close to my old interactive TV days. So it felt very comfortable that way. What was interesting was that Truex was a small company that had been purchased by Fox, which was then purchased by Disney, So we left Disney, went to Truex, and then Disney bought Fox. And so we were back at Disney for for a little while, too. So it it, it was quite the ping pong.
0: And then you ended up in your current role at Comcast. And just so the audience knows, in that role, you oversee the research function at Comcast Advertising. Yeah, among other things, you've got a lot on your portfolio there. Maybe you could talk a little bit about what your day job is now and what you've been learning in that new role.
1: So my group is Marketing Insights and Client Experience. It's a little bit of a hodgepodge. And one of my primary goals for this year is to bring it together and make it more of a unified organization. The marketing piece includes brand marketing, the creative people, the event marketing people, folks who do our social marketing, employment brand marketing, as well as creating content for thought leadership. And so that's a a large piece of it. Then we have Insights and Analytics Group, which what you might think of as more classic media research. And what's fun about doing that at at Comcast Advertising is that we sit on a mountain of data.
0: Ah, massive.
1: We have access to, under the appropriate terms, Comcast set-top box data, as well as the advertising data out of Freewheel. And so the intersection of those two data sets is really interesting. And we're just scratching the surface there. And then we have client experience, which is a relatively new practice at CA, but a more established practice at Comcast overall, bringing the voice of of the customer into everything that we do and bringing the voice of the customer in a systematic and scientific way. So I I think of it as we're going to come up with all kinds of great ideas. We're going to test them with research. We're going to try them out with our customers to see how they land. And then we're going to market them and tell the story as we grow the business based on those new ideas.
0: See, you got it all figured out.
1: (laughs) My work is done.
0: Now, Rick, one of the really exciting parts about your day job, I guess, is you work a lot with Freewheel, which is, of course, a Comcast affiliated company. And I know that at the recent CANS, Freewheel announced something that was really exciting the Viewer Experience Lab, in partnership with Media Science, as it so happens. Maybe you could tell the audience a little bit about first who Freewheel is and what the unique space is which Freewheel plays in the digital media landscape. And tell us about this viewer experience lab.
1: Sure. So Freewheel is far and away the leading provider of advertising technology to the sell side, the publisher side of the advertising ecosystem. Freewheel supports the monetization efforts of nearly every major video publisher, from you know, Viacom to Warner to NBCU, you name it. That's Freewheel's primary focus. They do have some sell-side technologies and some other technology, but they are the ones who make the monetization of premium video content possible for those publishers. The Experience Lab, is a natural extension of that role that free will plays. We hear people talking about how the viewer experience with regard to advertising can be better. They talk about seeing the same ad too often or too many ads in general, or that the quality of the ads that they're seeing, you know, both technical quality and otherwise, are, aren't right. And there's a lot of received wisdom in the industry about you know, what's better and what's worse, but there's not enough science. And working with Media Science, a company that you may have heard of, Dwayne, we are trying to, to be more systematic in understanding how viewers respond to different ad loads, different frequencies, various factors that make up the overall viewing experience with regard to advertising, so that we can optimize that experience in a way that is satisfying to both consumers, to viewers and to the advertisers and their marketing objectives.
0: How exciting, a real win-win proposition for both advertisers and, and viewers. You know,
1: as you have heard me say, or many people have heard me say, it doesn't work unless everybody wins. And, and so. I really believe that. And you you know, if you think of, of our business as sort of a three-legged stool, right? You have the viewers, you have the publishers, you have the advertisers and the agencies together, you know, the, the buyers. and it has to work for all three or it doesn't work at all
0: so true, so true. and I know that on the freewheel site there are already reports that uh, that are going up there about uh, about findings out of the viewer experience lab. so exciting stuff to look forward to
1: absolutely it, it's it's something that's a passion of mine. It's great that we are working together, you and I it's but it's great also that we're working to perfect the viewer experience, which I think is critical to the long-term health of the entire industry.
0: Given your heritage with ad products in particular, you've really seen it almost since the dawn of time, so to speak, in terms of at least new ad formats. What do you see in your current role? What are you learning in your current role around new ad formats and how they work?
1: To a little bit of an extent, I am a new ad format skeptic. Let me tell you why. It harkens back to those days when we launched the ABC full episode player and we created this interactive canvas and slowly but surely everybody stopped using it. And I really wanted to know why. And if we had a CX practice then at ABC, I think it would have been fertile ground for them. And as best as I can tell, the why was scalability. Our interactive ad canvas was a different format. It had different specs than the one that NBC used and the one that, you know, yeah, YouTube used and blah, blah, blah. And from an agency's perspective, they could cut a 30, output various versions of it that's for whatever endpoints it was gonna get displayed at and call it a day. It's, it was very scalable for them. And so I'm always a little skeptical about new ad products, new ad formats, because if they're not adopted by everybody, The agencies have increased costs for supporting them versus somebody else's ad product that they have to support too. And it doesn't scale for them. And so they're like, no, I'm just going to give you a 15 or a 30. So I think that's like the fundamental insight to me, which is if it doesn't scale, it's not going to make it.
0: Rick, what's next for you? Where are you guys going right now? Where are you on your journey?
1: The thing I've been thinking a lot about lately is... Finding the right balance between the top of the funnel and the bottom of the funnel. Great point. I feel like our whole industry, seduced by being able to answer the, the John Wanamaker paradox, right? After yeah. what I spend on advertising wasted, I just don't know which half, and certainly encouraged by the digital folks, Facebook, Google, Amazon even, has maybe overweighted the bottom of the funnel and data-driven advertising.
0: Let, let's explain okay. this concept for the audience, Rick, because not everybody comes from our industry. So m- maybe you can elaborate well, here a little bit. To...
1: So if you think of a purchase funnel, right? At the top of the funnel, very wide is, are people aware of your brand? In the middle of the funnel, and, and there, everybody's got a different purchase funnel. I'm, I'm going to use the most simplified model possible. In the middle of funnel is, are people considering your brand? And the bottom of the funnel, very narrow, right? The way the funnel is shaped is are people ready to buy your brand? Do they intend to buy your brand? Digital is really good at capturing that intent, taking those people who are close to purchase and and connecting them to a means to actually fulfill that purchase, right? People who have the itch, we're gonna give them a means to scratch. What I think digital is not as good at, or the way people mostly use digital today is not as good at, is the top of the funnel, generating awareness And I think that's ultimately really important because the research shows, and a lot of this is from the Ehrenberg Bass Institute, that the way to grow your brand is to take people who don't participate in your category and to get them to become occasional category participants and to get people who are occasional category participants and get them to move up to light category participants, right? And those people are not going to be reached through a highly targeted media proposition. They don't qualify. So you have to find the right balance. You have to activate the people who are ready to purchase. For sure, it's extremely important. But you also have to find the people who are outside of your target and try to find a way to make them aware of your brand so that when the time comes that they are actually ready to make a purchase, you're top of mind. And I feel like our industry has lost sight of that upper funnel importance and spent a lot of energy at the bottom of the funnel to the overall detriment of growing a brand. And and the, the other thing that I think about is the, it would have happened anyway problem. So the thought problem I like to to use here, and this is by no means original is pizza parlor sends three guys out with coupons says, Hey, give them 50% off discount coupons. And each guy gets a, a different color, red, blue, green, and. At the end of the day, they've got so many more green coupons than red or blue. And they say to the, to the green guy who's, they have so many more green coupons, wow, you did so well. What'd you do? He said, I stood outside the pizza parlor and gave them the coupons as they walked in. <laughs> and, and I, and I feel it's a like, great story, like Rick. I,
0: it's a great story.
1: I feel like a, a lot of our marketing kind of forgets that, like that when people are close to the purchase journey. They're close to the purchase journey. And and, attributing the the last thing that they saw or the last thing they clicked on to the sale kind of ignores everything that came before and takes credit for something that would have happened anyhow. So that's what I'm thinking about. I am not in any way a skeptic of targeting. I think it's extremely important. It's important to our, our offerings to customers. But I think it has to be part of an overall media plan that includes uh, upper funnel and reaching those people who are currently not in your category. The classic example is serve the dog food ad to the dog owner and the cat food ad to the cat owner. And I think that, that example is wrong. Like I'm a dog food owner. I'm telling you right now, if I switch my dog's food, I'm in trouble, it's gonna have stomach issues. The way to grow your dog food sales is to say to people, life is better with a dog, which it is by the way, and to get them to get a dog and also buy your dog food.
0: Amazing. It's a great occasion also to celebrate some of the research that we've done together in this arena, which yeah, I think really is, is landmark in demonstrating the value of the brand equity in terms of the performance metrics, ultimately. In the study that we did together, what we did is we had ads for non-existing brands and to your Team's credit, it was the Comcast advertising people who produced these ads, and they looked like proper network TV ads. They were gorgeous ads, but they were for fictitious products that don't actually exist in the marketplace. So we know. That there is no prior exposure to the brand for anybody going into the experiment and then what we do in these experiments and there have been a few of them that we've done together. Is we either show people the TV ad in the context of watching like a TV show so they're exposed to the brand. Or they don't get that prior exposure and then they go and they experience the content like in social media so they're getting two exposures one on TV, one on social media, or they're getting two in social media. And so theoretically that should be the same, but what we see very conclusively in that evidence is that without the benefit of the brand equity, the performance metrics suffer significantly. So there is a very clear role that brand equity is playing in terms of the performance response that we ultimately see.
1: This result should not have been a surprise to us, even though it was, because at the <laughs> At the end of the day, it's about memory. And a full sight, sound motion ad inside compelling quality content drives memory pretty much better than anything else. And that's what we keep proving over and over again.
0: Rick, we asked this question of everybody, all of our guests. You bring a new perspective to it, sitting on the executive side of this equation. The question is, if you were giving advice to this new generation of researchers, what advice would you give?
1: All right, look, when you're hammer, everything looks like a nail, I'm a business guy. So I think about research in terms of the business. I think it's critical that media researchers understand the media business.
0: Oh my God. Yes. So true. Hallelujah.
1: Understand how, how do we make money from the content? How does the content get produced? Who are the players? What are the pain points? If you're doing advertising research, understand the advertising ecosystem. Like, what's the role of the agency? What's the role of the advertiser? How do those two engage? What is the business model between them? Like, the more you understand the business, the more complete your understanding of the full scope of the media ecosystem is, the better you can interpret and tell the story of the research results that you're delivering. And to to me, that's the critical thing, which is you can't just be a great researcher. You have to be knowledgeable about the entire ecology of media.
0: That's great advice. I think it's particularly relevant in this stage of data analytics where the, the background to people coming in often is very focused on the math and not as focused on the context. And you're absolutely right. To understand the context means that you're able to explore the data with a very different framework because you understand more other than just getting to the answer as fast as you can. You're able to really understand what the implications might be and you're able to, 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 to find things that you might not otherwise have have discovered if you didn't really have that background with the context. Rick okay. Manler, you are a legend. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been such a joy doing this trip down memory lane for the past 20 years plus.
1: (laughs) It's been really fun for me too, but I will go on the record right now. I am not a legend and I'm not a media researcher, but I play one one on TV.
0: Thanks very much, Rick. And thank you, the audience, for joining us today. Don't miss our next exciting episode of Legends of Media Research. And if you'd stick around for a little message from Media Science at the end of this episode, I'm Media Science CEO Dwayne Veron, thanking you for participating with us in today's episode. See you again next time on Legends of Media Research.
2: Almost every major innovation in the TV advertising industry over the course of the past decade was first tested by media science researchers. Whether you're talking about video ads on mobile phones or limited interruption ad pods, or program context effects, or brand integrations, or pause ads, or picture-in-picture ads, or six-second ads, or interactive ad formats, I mean, the list goes on and on. All were first tested by Media Science. Media Science is the leader in media innovation research. So, when you're looking for media or advertising innovation research, collaborate with Media Science. Learn more at MediaScience.com.